you look at the alternative and it is to give up and to consign ourselves to a, a future defined by the, the pettiness and the smallness um, and, and the inhumanity of this administration and in this moment. And I very often think about my kids in, in reference to this question, what in the hell are they gonna think about me and Amy and, and all of us knowing exactly what's happening? You had this president who, who called immigrants rapists and criminals, who's caging kids, who wants to ban all Muslims, saying one people uh, of one religion are inherently defective. That was happening during your lifetime, Dad. And in fact, you were in a position to do something about it. What did you do? I am so glad that I decided to tape these introductions to the podcast I did while at Essence Festival after I'd already left because I actually taped the podcast you're about to hear uh, today, the morning after I attended the New Edition concert. <laughs> and let me tell you, I sang every song, so my voice was trash. So if I sound a little, you know, more Kathleen Turnerish than usual, then uh, you guys are going to have to bear with me. But real quick, can I just say something about Bobby Brown uh, before we get to today's guest? He is my hero. That's like my spirit animal on some level. Bobby was out of breath, singing about 20% of all the songs, but he was just out there, barely moving. Bobby Brown, bloated and everything. I love you, Bobby. Uh, he also gave a really touching tribute to his late daughter, uh, Bobby Christina. But anyway, let's move on to what I have in store for you for today's podcast. Now, the previous podcast, I sat down with Senator Kamala Harris, who barely trails frontrunner Joe Biden in the polls. Today, I'm sitting down with another presidential candidate, former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke. Now, he was this close to beating Ted Cruz for the Texas Senate seat, but during the race, he gained such a huge national following, he eventually decided to run for president. So if you don't know about Beto O'Rourke, Here's your opportunity to do your own research and hear everything directly from him. I also have a proposal for Beto that I'm positive will make him a lock to win the nomination. So let's get into it. We are making history on this podcast, not just because we have a presidential candidate, but uh, Beto O'Rourke, and I say this as a small thug tear kind of rolls gently down my cheek, you are the first white person to be on this podcast. I know that I know that you're going to put this on your career resume. Oh, totally. Like, yeah. First white person to ever appear on Jamel Hill is unbothered. But thank you for taking time out because I know your schedule is pretty crazy. It's a huge honor. Thank you, <laughs> thank you for having me. Seriously. <laughs> I, love, yeah. I love that you put that, yeah. put some sauce on that. I do yeah. appreciate it. So we're here in New Orleans at Essence Festival. It's my first time at Essence. Your first time? I'm Mine assuming? too. Okay, yeah. so good. We have yeah. that also yeah. in common. What made you decide to, to come to Essence? I tell you, um, we were just both talking about our flights over here, you from LA, uh, I came in from Houston. The energy on that airplane, the the joy, um, the excitement was- The sheer it, blackness it, of it all. <laughs> absolutely, C completely turned my day around. You know, it, it really did, We, you know, kind of a tough, long day. We'd started in Iowa, 
had flown to, to Houston. We're at the NEA conference. We're getting back on an airplane to Louisiana. Um, we're in the slog of this campaign. Our polling isn't as great as we want it to be. There's so many things that you could get down about. And then there was this extraordinary joy on the airplane and you could not help but crack a smile and take it in and want to be part of it. And then, uh, you know, on the ground here, uh, in the lobby of this hotel before we came up to your room to record this, so many people coming up and, and just giving us their love and encouragement and strength. And for no other reason than that, I am glad that I'm here. Uh, además, I get, to, I get to talk to and introduce myself to a, a number of people who've flown in from all over the country. And here, here's something that, that's an obvious truth, but, but bears repeating. Black women are the heart and the strength and the soul of the Democratic Party. Uh, on their shoulders, you've seen victories in uh, Alabama. Uh, you've seen national victories for the presidency. You've seen a near victory in, in Texas in 2018. But to ensure that they're not taken for granted, but that I am listening to them and reflecting back what I've heard, the guidance that I've received, this is my opportunity, I hope, to, to share some of what I've learned and, and to make the case that my leadership as president will reflect their leadership um, that has guided the campaigns that I've been a part of and the success that this country has seen for so long. Yeah, um, this is also, because it's Essence Festival, you will never see more black aunties than you will see here in New Orleans. So uh, just keep in mind, you're, you're, you're here in front of a real auntie crowd. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, black women voters have become a, a huge, important a voting block in the Democratic Party. 55% um, of eligible black women voters, they cast ballots in November 2018, a full six percentage points above the national turnout. Now, you are scheduled to speak at Essence Festival at the on the power stage, which is huge, in front of potentially thousands, obviously, of black women. So what will be your message to them when you speak to them later today? I think both an acknowledgement of, of what you just described, that the progress that we've made is disproportionately because of the leadership of, of black women, not just in our party, but in this country, and not just in politics. Um, I believe that uh, small businesses owned by women of color have a growth rate 14 times the average small business in this country. So, so literally economic growth and job creation, though President Trump will try to take credit for it, it, it really is from the ground up, the grassroots, folks who are taking risk, people who have been drawn out of access to capital and yet have found a way to start those businesses nonetheless. Um, making sure that we build, capitalize on that leadership, that risk-taking, that growth with policies that allow us to expand that economy even further. So in a capitalist society, making sure that capital is available to everyone. Uh, in an economy where African-American women are paid 61 cents on the dollar that a man makes, ensuring that we no longer have discrimination in the workplace. We have an equal rights amendment that enshrines this in our foundational document, the United States Constitution. Looking at disparities in education that have a lot to do with who is at the head of that classroom. So teachers and educators who look like the students that they're connecting with, uh, fundamental to our progress as a country, and again, capitalizes on the leadership that we've seen from black women so far in America. Healthcare, uh, we talked a lot about this in Texas. We, we are in the midst of a maternal mortality crisis. 
not unconnected to the fact that Texas successfully closed down one of the quarter of our family planning clinics, which means not only safe legal access to an abortion, but a cervical cancer screening, family planning help in a state that failed to expand Medicaid, just any kind of medical help at all denied to so many. And yet the rate of maternal mortality for women of color in Texas is three times greater. So, so how do we address that? It's not just universal health care, which is important, guaranteed, high quality for every person. It is looking specifically at the challenges that black women face, uh, not just uh, maternal mortality, but infant mortality rates that are greater today in 2019 than they were in 1850, 15 years before the abolition of slavery. That means that you have home health care visits. That means that you employ midwives and doulas uh, that have been shown to improve outcomes, to save lives in the process, and that you also acknowledge that there is a daily weathering that women of color face, um, that if not acknowledged, if not confronted, if not improved, is going to continue to lead to disparate outcomes, regardless of what we do when it comes to access. So these are some of the things that I wanna make sure that I talk about because they reflect what I've heard from women of color, um, not just all across Texas, but all across this country. Yeah, 94% of black women in the state of Texas voted for you. And uh, you've been to Detroit, you've campaigned all over South Carolina. Um, and just your conversations, not just with black women, but black people in general across this country, from what you've heard from them, what are their most pressing issues and concerns that they're expressing to you? Yeah. So often, in fact, without fail, and I heard it just now walking into this hotel, do not forget us. And, and a, a tacit acknowledgement that you just said 94% of African-American women voted for us in Texas. Had I won that position of public trust in the Senate, um, the expectation is you are going to come back and continue to listen to me, to be accountable to me, not just for the rhetoric and what you say, but your ability to deliver the results on all of those policy issues that we just outlined in answer to your, your previous question. So that fundamental respect that has been denied to communities of color, a, a, a very real open question of... Um, we've been there for Democrats in the past, uh, have almost been taken for granted because we're such a reliable voting constituency of Democrats. But, but what have you done? If, if African-American women are, are making 61 cents on the dollar, if there's 10 times the wealth in white America than there is in black America, if we lock up 2.3 million of our fellow Americans and, and that prison population is disproportionately comprised of color, what has that support produced? In, in the long run. So um, there are a number of specific issues that come up as I listen to people, but that fundamental issue of respect, of accountability, of, of follow through, of making a difference and not taking people for granted, um, perhaps that, that underlies everything else that we could possibly talk about. Yeah, you, you said earlier that, um, you know, you, of course, you mentioned your polling numbers about, I mean, I, I looked at some of them, they're in, in single digits. And I'm just wondering, at, at how much do you pay attention to that? And how do you keep that from like influencing everything that you do. I imagine you want to run the campaign you want to run, right. but how do you keep those numbers from sort of maybe um, influencing how you decide to approach your own campaign? Yeah, it's such a good question. And, um, and it's a question that I ask myself right now, to be honest with you. Um, no one wants to be this low in the polls. Um, and it, it's only 
honest for me to say that. I mean, I think the uh, politic answer is to say, you know what, who cares about the polls? You know, I'm, I'm just focused on, on listening to people and being with them and connecting with them. That is true. Um, but, but that national perception has to have an impact on how we feel about the campaign, how, how people feel about us. And so how do you come through and, and out of this? Um, I think the only way to do it is to look back on where we were in Texas at the same time in the Senate race. No one knew who I was. I was polling in single digits there. We had not a snowball's chance in Houston of getting past Ted Cruz or becoming the first Democrat to be uh, elected to the U.S. Senate since 1988. And yet we persisted through uh, the um, disbelief uh, of others, connected with people and gave them power, said, look, uh, I'm, I'm coming to your community. I'm going to share with you who I am. I'm going to listen to you. If you're into this, I'm going to give you the, the keys to the campaign headquarters in Texarkana or, or Midland or Cashmere Gardens. And, and then you run with this campaign. And surely, uh, sometimes too slowly, but ultimately we saw a transformation in the politics of the state of Texas that had ranked 50th in voter turnout before 2018, not by accident, 100% by design, drawn that way congressional districts that minimized and diminished the power of black voters, uh, concentrated the power of, of white voters, and yet against those obstacles, people came together, believed in this, and, and we made it through the lean years, um, so to speak. And, and I, I feel that same test right now. Um, and I'll tell you just one, one quick anecdote. We were in Williams, Iowa, population 334, uh, day before yesterday. And, you know, 70, 80 people turned out. Uh, so a significant share of the population of that community. And we just had this really raw, honest conversation about this campaign, where the country is right now, and what was on the minds of the people that I want to serve in the White House. And after that town hall, after that conversation, I was so pumped, so energized, so reminded of why I'm doing this in, in the first place. I want to be doing more of that. Um, in a six-minute interview on Face the Nation, in a one-minute answer on a debate stage, I don't know that I can convey adequately why I'm doing this, what I feel like when, when someone shares with me their story, their expectations. It is only by connecting with people, one town, one town hall meeting, one person at a time that I find my purpose. And so doing more of that, I think, is the answer to that question. And ultimately, as, as you might expect me to say, the poll that really matters is that Iowa caucus, the results, the people who commit to us, and and those um, relationships that we build one person one day at a time. So that's what I'm trying to focus on now. But yeah, it's tough right now, to be honest with you. It's tough. But it, it, is it, you said, you know, you think that people don't get a sense of who you are. And you're right. They don't get a sense from a debate, from an interview, and maybe not even from this podcast, right? And connect that one-to-one -one connection is, is really important. But still, people still shape their perception off of those things. And so whatever perception of you they had coming in, they see the debate and then they may not leave with the entire perception and you may not be able to change that. Right. Is that is that kind of frustrating? Because you can't you did it in Texas. You visited every county. Right. Right. You can't visit every city in America. So is it frustrating that even still the national perception may not truly convey the message or who you are as a person? Yeah, it's a little frustrating, but but the onus is on me to do a better job of conveying 
that town hall experience in, in Williams or being in Denmark, South Carolina at Voorhees College, learning that that entire community has in fact been poisoned through a water system that was treated with pool cleaner. It's gonna take $15 million to repair it so that you can drink what comes out of the tap, but there's not the political will or the ability to connect those who need help with those who are actually in power to get that fixed right now. That story moved me, reminded me why I'm running in the first place, the urgency of ensuring that in a position of public trust, you help those who, who need it, who are depending on you. How I get that across in that one minute answer on the debate stage, uh, how I convey that in a national television interview, that's on me. I, I've, I've got to figure out uh, how, how to do it and, and find a way to be comfortable in those settings uh, in a way that I'm comfortable talking with you right now, um, sitting on this couch or being in a town hall or a house party or just a conversation that we had on a street corner in New Orleans with folks who recognize me came up and said, hey, Beto, what are you about? Uh, why are you doing this? I recognize you from, from TV. Talk to me. I love that. Um, and, you know, politics um, at its most fundamental, most powerful uh, way is is just people sharing, connecting, goes all the way back thousands of years to the, the very beginning of democracy. Nothing really has fundamentally changed about that. So, so my task is to make sure that I continue to make that connection, whether we're doing it here eyeball to eyeball or whether I'm doing it through a, a television screen. So I'm up for it, want to do it, believe that I can, uh, know that this is possible, and I just got to deliver. Did, did you watch your debate performance back? I did. So my campaign, yeah. yeah, my campaign manager Jen said, "Look, I know this is going to be painful, but but I want you to watch that that debate uh, performance." And I did. And, and a couple of things. Um, one is in the moment, it it is so intense um, that I realized that I, I wasn't totally seeing everything that was happening because you're just so tunnel vision focused on the question and your response and. Um, just just what you feel, getting to see the, the broader debate stage, the context in which those questions were asked, um, actually made me feel a little bit comfortable, a little bit more comfortable going into this next one, uh, greater understanding of what that looks like to the, the viewer at home, better idea of how I can just come across a little bit more relaxed and, and comfortable uh, and confident as I feel right now, as I typically do. Uh, you're, you're in this incredibly unnatural position made up on a debate stage with nine other candidates with a lit up podium with the television cameras on you. Um, it's a moment to, to breathe. Remember why you're in this in the first place, uh, that some of this, a lot of this, all of this is in God's hands. And you just got to be the, the channel for all those people you've ever listened to, met, talked to, whose hopes that you are carrying and, and got to be smiling while, while you're doing it. So watching that was helpful for me to, to remember to, to do all that in, in the next performance. I felt really good about the content of the answers I gave. I think something needs to come through that's a lot more me in the way that I give those answers. That's, that's my armchair assessment after <laughs> having watched, the, uh, watched the, the debate performance. So as, you, as you're standing there on that stage and these other moments are happening, the, moment is, the moments that wound up going um, you know, viral, are you aware in that moment like, oh, Shit, that's about to be a moment. That's about to be. That. Are you like aware of that as somebody else on that stage? Not, not so much. And I think um, I was describing this to a friend. You know, the aperture of your mind starts to to close, and you become very 
um, almost in a, in a tunnel vision way, at least I do, focused on your interaction and exchange with the moderator, the, the 60 seconds that are counting down on that clock in front of you. And and in, in so doing, kind of lose uh, the larger context and sense of what's happening on that stage. I need to open that aperture up a lot wider to, to see everything else that is happening, to engage in a conversation much in the same way that you and I are right now, or in the way that I do in a town hall meeting in the thousands that we've held across Texas and, and across this country. Um, so, so no, it wasn't, wasn't thinking this, this is a moment, this is going to be clipped. This will be on YouTube was, was so focused on my answer. So, um, widening that focus to, to see the, the larger picture, I think is going to be helpful, uh, to me. I just, and, and you, you may know me well enough just from our conversations in Texas and, and, and as you have followed all of the campaigns that are being run right now, I'm just not a soundbite guy, mm -hmm. never have been, never had a bumper sticker, um, or a slogan. I say a catchy phrase, <laughs> catchy phrase that reduced everything that, that I'm about mm -hmm. in, into three or, or four words. Um, it, it's that longer conversation and engagement and interaction that drives me, that has fueled this campaign, that is how I believe that people naturally interact with one another. Um, so, you know, again, finding a way that um, that comes across in that one minute answer on TV, that's, that's going to be the challenge that I face. And so going into Detroit, really thinking through how, how we do that. And also um, this, I don't know how to put this into words, but feeling that mm. is really important, even more than, than thinking that through, just feeling that and, and coming across as a person that I am and, and hopefully bringing across all those people that I've met. Um, that's, that's my job. So when you're going back and forth, when you're in that back and forth um, with Julian Castro, are you thinking this is about to be something or are you just trying to respond to him? Like what are, what's going through your mind as you guys are going back and forth about um, decriminalizing the border? So first of all, um, just trying to give my answer to the question asked in the 60 seconds I have and realizing there's somebody who's talking over my answer. So, so trying to establish a space to actually communicate what I believe, what I think, and what I know we can do to ensure that you know, no family is ever separated, no child is ever placed in a cage. We don't torture these kids who came seeking salvation and refuge. We account for the fact that seven kids have died in our custody just over the last year in this administration. And, you know, my proposal is that you never criminally prosecute a family, a person, certainly not a child, for doing what any human being would do faced with the same circumstances and consequences for staying in their home country, some of the deadliest places on the planet. And then making sure that, that I clarify that the, the plan that we have proposed uh, beyond stopping uh, what is so un-American at our border um, makes the most of who we are as a country, a nation of immigrants and asylum seekers and refugees. Nothing to apologize for or be defensive about. Legalize America. Um, the millions of people who are working some of, if not the hardest jobs in America today. Make sure dreamers never fear deportation back to a country they've really never known. Invest in solutions. Work with partners in Honduras, El Salvador, uh, Guatemala. I want to make sure all of that comes across because that's America at her best. That is America achieving security, not through walls 
in cages and militarization of the border, but by recognizing our best traditions and living up to our potential and our promise. That's what I want to be able to, to get across. That's what I'm trying to do, whether it's in our conversation right now or, or on that debate stage. Um, and, and it's what I feel from people and, and maybe surprisingly to some, not just from Democrats and not just independents, but Republicans as well. They want this country to be able to do the right thing. And, and I think it's important that we call out not just what so disturbs us, um, this dehumanization of people at the border, but call out who we are at our best and remind ourselves of the aspirational, ambitious quality of America and, and call ourselves to the service of, of actually achieving that. That's, that's what I want to do. That's what I'm called to do as a candidate. That's what I'm trying to do in answering those questions. Um, and that's what I was trying to do on that debate stage. So um, I'm always impressed when I, whenever I've spoken with politicians, and certainly I think it's one of your impressive traits, is the fact that politicians are so optimistic. And I just wonder, how is it that you don't wake up some days and be like, we're all fucked? Like, yeah. what are we doing here? Because yeah. I feel that way a lot when I wake up like, holy shit, the crazy people have won. How do you maintain, even as you look at not just your polling numbers, but even talking to people on a, on a daily basis, because I know people tell you some crazy shit all the time. Yeah. How do you maintain this sense of, I can actually make this better? How does that happen? You look at the alternative, and it is to give up and to consign ourselves to a, a future defined by the, the pettiness and the smallness um, and, and the inhumanity of this administration and in this moment. And I very often think about my kids in, in reference to this question, what in the hell are they gonna think about me and Amy and, and all of us knowing exactly what's happening? You had this president who, who called immigrants rapists and criminals, who's caging kids, who wants to ban all Muslims, saying one people uh, of one religion are inherently defective. That was happening during your lifetime, Dad. And in fact, you were in a position to do something about it. What did you do? And I've got to believe that there's a way that we make this country better for them, for all of us, that we live up to those things that we told our kids America represents. Um, otherwise, give up. And, and why, why even bother in, in the first place? Um, and then, and then you, you, you see the urgency from people who are counting on us. We finished the 4th of July parade in Independence, Iowa, and we went to the little carnival afterwards, eating fried foods, um, having a corn dog. And I met this mother who immediately just burst into tears when she saw me because I'm a politician and because her daughter, Petra, is significantly disabled requires around the clock 24-hour care from her and from her family and she is beyond herself anxious about the fact that those protections for pre-existing conditions might get pulled from Petra that there may be some cap on the lifetime medical costs that the insurance company will pay that she hasn't had a day or a minute off from caring for her child and she's just she's she's at the end and she is depending on, on us to be able to be there for her. And, and she is desperate, but she is not without hope. Um, and, and that hope is that through this process, through these elections, perhaps through my campaign, perhaps through someone else's, we're going to resolve the challenges that she and Petra face. And they're counting on us. And if we just gave up 
to Donald Trump or to Mitch McConnell or to the absolutely screwed up state of our politics and our democracy at this moment, then we've given up on Petra. And I just can't do it. I, I can't meet her and, and ever give up. Uh, I, I can't think about my kids and, and ever give up. So I think that might be what informs and inspires my optimism and my hopefulness and perhaps that of of the others who are part of this campaign. Does Mitch McConnell just like hate people? Because I swear to God, that guy looked like he never smiled in his whole damn life. Yeah. Like, and just, he just seems to really, he has this very important job, but he really seems to hate the people that he, that are just not just um, his constituents, but like Americans in general. And I just can't figure out how somebody like him got this job. I know how they got the job, but still it just seems like he seems so fucking unhappy sometimes yeah. that it is it is not very um you know inspiring to see if you're outside um kind of looking in you know what i mean there's a lot of politicians like that that seem right. that they i don't know who exactly they think they're serving and so that's why i asked you like what is it that makes you want to be a part of this ridiculous system that only seems to get more extreme right. um as it goes along you, you you've got to wonder what what drives him you remember that moment when President Obama had been elected and Mitch McConnell's asked what, what his priorities are. And he doesn't talk about finding common ground on health care nope. or growing the economy <laughs> nope. or addressing any fundamental challenge that we face as a country. His number one goal was to ensure that President Obama did not win re-election. Um, when your political prospects or um, your own party's fortunes drive your priorities, then you get to the state that, that we found ourselves today in, in this country. Um, I hope that that as bad as, as it is, um, people like Mitch McConnell and, and Donald Trump will provoke a, a really profound, powerful, positive response in this country of people who see beyond party or polling or their prospects in the next election. They just want this country to be able to deliver and to be able to work. We were talking a little bit about Texas. We saw record voter turnout from typical Democratic constituencies, but also independents voting for a Democrat for the first time in decades. Half a million Republicans voted for a, a Tea Party governor and voted for me on, on the same ballot, not despite, but I would argue because of the way in which we campaigned, a very bold progressive agenda that we described that we hope will work for everyone, bring everybody in. And we just never wrote anybody off. If, if you were a Republican, if you voted for Donald Trump, I said, no me importa, I, I could care less. What I wanna know is how we're gonna work together going forward on the greatest set of challenges that we have ever faced. That, that's what turns me on, that's what drives me. Um, that's why I got into this in, in the first place. And I hope that is what can distinguish me in, in an incredible uh, field of extraordinary candidates right now is we're not going to pit ourselves against each other. We're going to bring ourselves in. And the answer to Mitch McConnell is not more Mitch McConnell. Um, it, it is showing Mitch McConnell and the rest of this country that we can still pull this off. 243 years into the experiment, America can can still work. And, and I would argue work better than it ever has. It has to, because for so many people, it never really worked at all. That's that's our challenge. That's the test. That's this moment. So, um, you, you know, you, you have said, I've heard you say before, just like you said, just now, now that, you know, you're looking to find, you know, to flip Trump uh, supporters or to find that common ground. Um, so, you know, I believe much like anybody uh, knows, like you don't negotiate with terrorists. And I find, frankly, talking to a lot of these Trump supporters that 
I don't know what that common ground is because if you thought that that was reflective of what we should be, what, are, what, what can I talk to you about? So what have you found to be the common ground, the things that you feel like you can relate to Trump uh, supporters on? Here, here's an issue and an idea that seems to transcend any division or difference or, or boundary, including those that exist between people who voted for Hillary Clinton or those who voted for Donald Trump. And that is this democracy has become a democracy in name only at this point for so many people. They get, as President Trump so infamously described, a system that is rigged that favors those who have the money to purchase access and influence and increasingly outcomes. They get that their vote and their voice does not count, is not heard, does not matter. And so if someone's willing to walk in and say, I'm going to drain this place, or I'm going to blow it up, or I'm going to go against every norm, um, every kindness, uh, ev every superficial quality of this democracy to lay bare just how screwed up this is, there's something radically appealing about that. If you can meet that in, in a different way, if you can say, look, I, I get it corporations, political action committees, special interests, they have purchased a, a dysfunction that allows drug companies to sell the medicines that we develop together as taxpayers back to us at the most expensive rates on the planet, for-profit prison corporations to incarcerate more people than on any other country on the face of the planet. All of these outcomes, farmers who, who grow the food upon which we depend, but are underwater in debt, now underwater from the effects of climate change, literally, and do not have a voice in their democracy. If we can connect them to those who are running for office, those who hold positions of public trust without interference, if we can say to those who've been written out of their democracy, as they have in Texas, that we will enact a new voting rights act that ensures that voter ID laws, purges of voter rolls, no longer stand in the way of your ability to get to that ballot box. If we have term limits that ensure that you will not hold office for 40, 50, or 60 years, and that our institutions will reflect this country, its diversity, and its genius, I think you get to that frustration in a democracy and a politics that has not worked for far too many people and begin to connect them to power. And the only way I can demonstrate that beyond the rhetoric is to actually show up in those communities, in every community, communities that have been written off by Democrats, communities that have been taken for granted by Democrats. And that's what I'm doing on this campaign. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that feeling of, you know, feeling as if your vote doesn't count, feeling as if, um, you know, that politicians have overlooked you, taken you for granted. I understand that. And, you know, we're here at Essence, and nobody understands that more than black people, but yet we manage not to vote for a racist. And so that is part of why I have a particular frustration with him because it's something about what he said beyond just, I'm gonna drain the swamp and all this other stuff. It's some on some level they connected with the racism. Absolutely. On some level. Yeah, they absolutely. Did. And so it's hard for me to figure out what's the conversation I can have with somebody who connects with let's build a wall, which doesn't make any damn sense. Let's do all these other things to keep these people out. Let me vote against myself, essentially, in absolutely. a lot of places. Like I don't understand how to connect with somebody who thinks that way. That's why I'm glad you're the politician and not me, because I have a very low tolerance for these things. Right. Right. So that's why I was wondering, like, what is it that you can say to them that will break through the fact 
that they like the part about keeping people out and banning folks and that and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, I love the way that you just described that because that's the other part of, of the question. What are those things uh, on, on which we'll never see eye to eye and where there is absolutely no ground, uh, no common ground and which we should never tolerate in, in this country? Um, and, and there's a part of what Trump is doing um, that has laid bare a racism that obviously pre-existed mm-hmm. Donald Trump in, in his administration. And perhaps the best thing that we can say about it, it has forced us to confront something that has been at work in this country from the very foundation of this country. And so perhaps anything that we care about at this moment, we are going to have to grab a hold of and defend and be the champions of and ensure that this election in November of 2020 firmly and forever decides the issue because the contrasts could never be more clear. Perhaps it was implicit before, it is out in the open right now. So I think it's really important that we say that, but I think it's also important that we acknowledge that there were there were many people for whom Donald Trump represented uh, an ability to break through a system that was not working for them at, at some level. So calling out that, that racism, that intolerance, that Islamophobia, that hatred that has threatened to and maybe in some ways has already fundamentally changed the character of, of this country, while at the same time making sure that this democracy works for everybody. That's, that's our challenge going into 2020. That's our challenge in 2021 and the four years that follow. Uh, a lot of work for us to do, but I, but I know you've got to bring people in if you're going to be able to accomplish that work. Well, look, we've talked enough about politics. I want to ask you some fun shit, okay? Yeah. So when we come back, Beto, I'm going to ask you some fun questions especially about your Netflix habits, you and your wife. Okay. All right. Cause I'm getting married soon and I need some advice about uh, the idea of, or, or I need the final ruling I should say on whether or not it is actually okay. If you and your significant other are watching a show together for you to go ahead and speed forward in the episodes, don't answer it yet. Okay. But I need some advice on this. You, you might save me an impending divorce. So uh, more on that when we come back. So, as I said before the break, got to ask you some fun shit now. So, I read that you and your wife, both big Netflix watchers. Okay, what's your show? What are you watching now? So, we, we just finished this um, amazing series called Babylon Berlin. Oh, okay. And it's set in Germany in the 1920s and 1930s. Really well done, but it also describes how a country can go from a democracy, um, you know, a, a civilization that you could be proud of, to a, a fascist dictatorship that oh. is the, the worst of what humanity can can become. So perhaps appropriate for where <laughs> right, we are I was about right to say, now. So yeah. okay, all right, a, a case of life imitating yeah. art, baby. That's how I feel when I watch The Handmaid's Tale. Um, uh, so do you skip ahead to watch episodes, or do you you are you guys in it together? This is important. We are in it together. Uh. It, it is a. Uh, fast and hard rule that neither of us, though we spend a lot of time apart because I'm on the road, will ever sneak 
uh, an episode. But here's what happens when we are together. Almost inevitably, Amy falls asleep within the first 10 to 15 minutes of the episode that we're watching. So when we begin the next episode, the next night that we're together, I kind of have to talk her through what has just happened, which maybe in our own weird way kind of brings us a little bit closer uh, where she's kind of relying on me to make sure that, that she's up to speed. But that's that's our rule. We got to watch them together. So uh, when I watched the documentary that was done on you, I discovered that you you, you like to curse. <laughs> we all do. Curse, cursing sometimes feels good. And sometimes there's just not a better word to describe something than a curse word. Um, so what's your favorite curse word? I, I really have to work on not cursing as much. So <laughs> I, I try to be as honest as, as I can. And sometimes when I go into that well, honest place, too, I guess. there's there's a four letter word there connected to what I want to say. So um, my dad was though he was never in the Navy and wasn't a sailor, um, could, could string together four-letter words like, like nobody I've ever met. And he would make up um, some, unique, um, some unique phrases. One of them was fuckstick. And so when, when he was particularly vexed, uh, somebody cut in front of him in line, if he'd forgotten something at home, he'd say, God damn it, fuckstick. And I've never heard anybody else ever say that. Um, and that's just something that sticks out from my childhood. So, my dad is your so, so my dad, who passed away in 2001, um, some, somehow fuckstick is uniquely his. I've never heard anybody else say it. So is and it so, a noun? Is it a person, place thing? You, you, he could use it um, in, in any part of, of a sentence. He could construct an entire phrase around it. Um, so yeah, fuckstick, now it's out there. <laughs> All right. Uh, I feel like that could be a campaign slogan. Don't be a fuckstick. Yeah. Vote for Beto, yeah. right? I do. Uh, I did slightly lie to you. I said we weren't going to discuss any more politics, but there are just uh, quickly. I wanted to make sure so that people who are listening to this understand your policy positions on certain issues. And I have one that I think could potentially. I won't say I won't put that much sauce on it and say win you the election, but I'll say that you will curry the favor of literally. Every American, depending on how you answer a particular question that I have about what I think should be a proposal moving forward. So we're going to play a little game of for or against. So for or against marijuana legalization. For. Okay. Um, one of the things that came up in the debate was repealing Section 1325, which makes attempting to cross into the United States in between established entry stations in order to avoid inspection, a criminal misdemeanor punishable by a fine and or six, uh, six months in jail. Are you for or against repealing Section 1325? I'd rewrite 1325 okay. so that so that no family, no asylum seeker, no refugee is ever criminally prosecuted. I would reserve 1325 for the apprehension of known drug traffickers or human smugglers. I want to keep that as a tool to ensure that we continue to keep America safe, but we should never cage a child or separate a family or criminally prosecute somebody for doing what any human being would do. Okay. Gun control. For or against? For. Okay. Let, let's save lives. Okay. Um, erasing student loan debt. For or against? For, and, and let's do it in a responsible way. Let's make sure that we radically expand the public service debt forgiveness program. If you're going to teach school, wipe clean your, your debt. If you're going to work at a VA, let's make sure that you can focus on that veteran that you're serving and not worry about paying it back. If you don't do public service, let's refinance your student loan debt at the lowest possible rates. And for incoming students, especially middle income and lower income, accrue no debt at all, first two years free of any higher education. Reparations for or against? 
four, I just had a chance to, to meet with the principal sponsor of reparations legislation in Congress, Sheila Jackson Lee, yesterday. She talked about that meaning a constructive conversation that the entire country has about how this country was founded, how wealth was created, who enjoyed that wealth, and who was drawn out of enjoying that wealth. Only then do you begin the work of repairing, which is at the root of reparation. Only then do you stop the injustice that continues to be perpetrated on every successive generation. So here's the proposal that I think every American can get behind. And if you put this on your agenda, I promise you, you will see these poll numbers go to astronomical levels. The day after the Super Bowl, national holiday for or against well, when you put it that way, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we all need some recovery time. Come on, uh, man. And, and so that, that, that may make a lot of sense. Um, um, I'm going I'm to go four. Yes. I'm going to go four. We can yeah. do this. We can get this put into <laughs> law, man. You need to put this as one of your first executive orders. And, right. and we're going to credit you uh, with that holiday. I need when, no credit. I yeah. need no credit. Yeah. I need you to just take this and run with yeah. this. This is all yours. This is my gift to you for coming on this um, podcast. Um, and, and finally, I want to ask you, if you aren't elected president, was this all worth it? Absolutely. Hmm. And look, here's my commitment. Um, you, you asked me earlier about um, where, where do you find the hope or the optimism or, or the drive to do this? It's in the people of this country who are counting on all of us, the generations that follow, who are going to want to know that we were willing to stand up and be counted at the moment that it that it really counts. So whatever it takes, either as a nominee or supporting the nominee to make sure that we defeat Donald Trump in 2020, and then just as, or maybe even more importantly, help bring a really divided country together again in 2021, I'm all about it. And I'm going to spend every waking moment of my life in pursuit of, of those goals. Um, and, and I know that so many millions of our fellow Americans are doing the exact same thing in their lives as well. So we're in good company and I'm grateful for the opportunity. Well, Beto, you have the patience of Job. I don't know how you ran a race against Ted Cruz and didn't want to at some point slap the shit out of him because he made you sound like in some of the things that he would say about you. If you want him to come in and take your guns and he's a hippie, I was like, this dude can't be serious. Right. Um, but you have the patience uh, for having to and uh, going up against Ted Cruz, entangling his nonsense. And you should have never apologized, by the way, for the lion Ted thing. But. That's a conversation for another day and for engaging yourself in this in this process. I know it's difficult. I know it's a long road. Um, you hear from a lot of people and you have to listen to all and all these opinions and take them in. So I applaud you for even will being willing to put your neck out there and uh, to be in what I'm sure is a very difficult process for not just yourself, but also for your family, because they're under a lot of scrutiny, too, because you're now running for president. So thank you. And um, it's too bad you're not sticking around because I have a feeling that the last segment, how I close every podcast, you would truly enjoy. Although I'm thinking of of co-opting um, your phrase fuckstick, because uh, up next, the award winning the ever popular segment, Fuck It, I'm Bothered, brought to you by Fucksticks. <laughs> so for those who don't know or have just been dropping in and out of this podcast, one, I should chastise you for that, but 
you know, I'll make a concession for now. Uh, I moved to Los Angeles last October. And while I love living here, it has been a huge cultural change. I don't mean from a racial perspective, but from a lifestyle perspective. Motherfuckers are super healthy around here. And that means shit is super expensive. So I was flying out of LAX the other day, hella early. I'm on Southwest, but I'm in the A group because I'm fly like that. Uh, I go to Einstein's Bagels to get a wonderfully tasty turkey and egg white breakfast sandwich, which was delicious. Now, they didn't have any orange juice, and I really, really wanted some damn orange juice. So I go to this cafe next door to get some orange juice. Clerk rings it up and says, that'll be $7.65. Uh, say what now? Come again? $7.65 for some damn orange juice? And not a big jar of orange juice. We talking about a swallow, as Della Reese would say. A swallow of damn orange juice for $7.65. For $7.65, this orange juice better have me lit up on the inside like I'm Bruce Leroy. For $7.65, this orange juice better regenerate my liver. For $7.65, this orange juice better cleanse my whole soul and allow me to go to heaven. But y'all know I went ahead and paid for that damn orange juice, right? For that swallow orange juice, yes, I paid $7.65. Now, I took small sips because when the orange juice is $7.65, you got to preserve it. So it took me two damn hours to drink that damn orange juice that was $7.65. So fuck it, I'm bothered that I live in a city that has orange juice that is $7.65. And I don't give a damn that it's at the airport. And fuck it, I'm bothered that I actually paid for it because my punk ass didn't feel like going somewhere else to get some damn orange juice. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. <laughs>